pray. Prepare our hearts, O O God, to hear your word and obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So welcome to the fall. It's exciting to kick off another program year with you this morning and also to kick off a whole new series of sermons we're calling Big Stories. We're looking together this fall at the big stories of our faith, stories that if you grew up in the church, you probably learned in like kindergarten in Sunday school. And even if you grew up outside the church, you're probably still familiar with. Creation this morning, Noah and the flood is coming, Daniel and the lion's den, David and Goliath, all of our best and most popular stories. And we're looking at them again because the thing about stories like this is that we seldom go any deeper into them than we did in Sunday school. And the lessons we learned then are important lessons, but there's so much more in these stories. So we're going to look at them again. And our first story this morning is the first story, creation. The Sunday school lesson in this story is often that God made everything God made the universe in all of its beauty and diversity, and God made you and placed you in that with a role in all of creation. That's an amazing lesson and an important one you have to learn, but there's so much more here. So I want to invite you to do whatever you need to to listen well as we hear now these words from the book that we love. Listen with me. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and the light he called day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters to separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome to separate the waters under the dome from the waters above the dome, and God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the dome be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, God called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation, plants of every kind yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on the earth that bear fruit with its seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with its seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and days and for years and let them give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth 
to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the day from the night and the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God made the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply across the face of the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, the cattle of every kind, and every creeping thing that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, See, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps upon the earth, everything with the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were created and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work he had done in creation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. The lesson we learned as kids is that God made everything In all its vast wonder and beauty and diversity and all the intimate details, God made everything. And it's a wonderful lesson to learn. But as we start to grow up, we start to wonder about some things when we hear this story. We start to wonder about how it is that this story meshes maybe with what we learn in science classes. The days, for instance. Is it supposed to be seven 24-hour periods? Is that what we're talking about? And how long ago was this? You know, there are some Christians and Jews that think the earth is only 5,000 years old, but that doesn't really mesh with carbon dating and many other tools scientists have to tell us how old the earth actually is. So what's going on here? And most importantly, 
Where do the dinosaurs fit into the story? Really, that's what we're wondering, right? The question is, really, how literally are we meant to hear this story? Is this just a story we tell our kids? Or is science a lie? Have you wondered about this kind of stuff? Like four of you? Yeah. No, all of you, I think. Here's what I found really helpful. So our church is part of the Reformed Church in America, and in our denomination, there's a saying about Scripture. We say that Scripture as the Word of God is infallible and inerrant in all it intends to teach and accomplish. So Scripture is infallible and inerrant. There's no mistakes. There's no errors in it. It is perfect and whole in all it intends to teach and accomplish. So if you're a lawyer or your brain just thinks like that, you realize the operative part of that sentence is intends to teach and accomplish. So, for instance, what does Genesis 1 intend? So much of the confusion between Christianity and science is because people have lost sight of what Scripture intends to teach. Genesis 1, for instance, doesn't intend to teach us science doesn't intend to offer an eyewitness, timelined account of the origin of things. Our interest in that and thinking of history in those ways is only really a few hundred years old. Genesis 1 was a story told by the people of God in order to give us some understanding of who God is, of what this world in which we find ourselves is really like, and of who we are and what our place is in all of that. And it was a story that sought to do that in the midst of other religions and cultures with vastly different answers to those questions. Another one of the supposed problems with our creation story is that we've actually found there were other religions writing at the same time stories that look very similar to our creation story. And actually, a lot of scholars believe that the Hebrew people probably borrowed this creation story from the Babylonians, their neighbors. And some people learn that in like a college religion course and come to the conclusion, therefore, that Scripture is no longer trustworthy and toss it aside because it's not original. But before you jump to that conclusion, wait a few minutes. See, what the people of God did is that they took this story from the surrounding cultures that were telling it, this origin story that sought to explain for them who God was and what this world was like and what our place was in all of it. They took this story that everyone knew, and they changed it. And they changed it in some subtle but really important ways to tell us something very different about God, the world, and ourselves. They said, in effect, yeah, you've got part of it, but here's what you're missing. They weren't trying to tell a sequential, ordered, scientific account of the beginning of all things. They weren't trying to come up with a unique story that was all their own. They co-opted a story everyone knew to subversively tell a very different story. And I actually think that's kind of awesome. So let's take the rest of our time together to look at some of the things they changed 
and see what those tell us about who God is, what this world is like, and about who we are. So the first thing they changed has to do with who God is. So in the Babylonian creation story, it's called the Enuma Elish. The God who ends up creating the whole world is a God named Marduk. In their story, there's a bunch of other gods that are always sort of fighting with one another. And one day, Marduk's mom declares war on her six generations of descendants. Interestingly, those six generations correspond to our six days of creation. They're gods over those same realms that get created in six days. It was a long and bloody war that ensued, but at the end, Marduk arises victorious and kills his mother. Then Marduk takes his slain mother's corpse, and this is the point where it gets a little gross, but I didn't write the story, and he carves her up and makes first Mesopotamia and then the rest of the earth. The actual story is a little graphic, but that's not important for us. What's important is that in their story, Marduk makes the world out of war. It's done in struggle and in bloodshed. It is hard work and the result of family feuds and betrayal. That their god, Marduk, is one of many gods who by cunning and force rose to the top and emerged victorious by violence. Contrast that for a moment with our story. God is not one God among many. There are no rivals or equals. There's no competition. God does not fight and claw God's way to the top of a bloody heap. There's no struggle or bloodshed. And God is not only all-powerful with no competition, but God is able to create, not by having to carve up the remains of slaughtered enemies, but by speaking effortlessly offering God's word and creation begins to happen. God creates because God wants to, because God delights to, because God's love so overflows from within the inner life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that creation happens out of love. Creation is God's free choice, an effortless work of love and boundless creativity. It's in delight, as God continually says, it's good, it's good, it's very good. It's not the result of struggle and bloody war. Israel wanted to say something far different than we had imagined about who our God is. That our God is not just a larger version of us prone to struggling and fighting and jockeying for power, prone to violence and exerting will over others. God is not a blood-stained warrior, but a being of love and joy and delight, a God more powerful than we could have possibly imagined, yet a God who desired to share God's love with us, God's joy and delight with us. A God whose love simply overflowed one day until the cosmos happened. And as a result, untold beauty was born. It's a very different story about who our God is. But it's also a very different story about the world around us. As we already said, in the Babylonian story, the world was created by Marduk as he carves up his dead mother. It's a product of feud and bloody war and struggle and pain and anguish. 
Is that what we find in Genesis 1? The world we find there is created out of nothing. As God speaks it into being, God's word goes out over the void and turns chaos into order. And at every stage, God sees all that is created and God says, what? It is good. See, the Babylonian story is trying to explain something of the world around us. That the world seems filled with anguish and pain and toil and bloodshed. Because that's all it's ever been. That from the very beginning, the world was born out of war and death. So why expect to find anything different? But no such view is possible for us as the people of God. The world is not evil, but good. It is fruitful. It is blessed. It is filled with possibility it is ordered according to God's word. It is, it is beautiful and breathtaking. We have a story that comes a little bit into the future, Genesis 3, that seeks to account for the darkness we find within and outside of ourselves. But that is not original to God's creation. You know, Christians talk often about original sin, the idea that since Adam and Eve were, were born prone to wander, as we sometimes sing, prone to rebel against God and choose ourselves instead. As important as it is to understand original sin and our tendency toward it, lurking behind it, even more importantly, is an original goodness. That when God made everything, God continually steps back and a smile creeps across God's face as God says, it is good. The world is not the product of bloodshed and war and violence. There is a beauty, a goodness, a grandeur to all of creation that we cannot deny as God's people. That's what that poem that we heard that's printed at the beginning of your bulletin was trying to get at, at least the first half. The beauty of the kingfisher flashing into the water to catch a fish of the dragonfly as a light catches its wings, the sound of a stone as it tumbles into a well. The world is filled with God's beauty as each thing does what each thing is. What it is meant to do is filled with wonder. The world is not suffering, not the carved up remains of God's enemies, but the overflowing of God's love it is good, it is fruitful, it is possibility. Which means we don't need to conquer it, or escape it, or overcome, or destroy it. But cherish, and delight in it. Work alongside God to restore it to its created design. It's an incredibly different story we're telling, not just about God, but also about the world around us, isn't it? That our very physical reality and existence is beautiful and a delight, not the product of violence and bloodshed. It's a different story about God. It's a different story about the world around us. It's also a very different story about who we are as human beings. See, in the Babylonian story, humans come about at about the same time, the end. Everything else is finished and put together. But in the Babylonian story which is representative of many ancient cultures, 
Humans are created then at the end to be slaves for the gods. The gods were tired after all that fighting and needed someone to do all the work for them. They looked around and the animals weren't fitting, so they made human beings. They made them so that they could farm and gather and raise animals and make wine and offer it back to the gods. They didn't want to do it themselves, so here we are. In their story, we're slaves. We have no choice in the matter. Our, our lot in life is toil and hardship and work. We're here to provide for them, do whatever they ask in sacrifice and gifts and obedience. We're made to work, and that is all we are and have. But our story goes a little differently, doesn't it? We're not made as slaves for God's, but as God's partners. We're created in God's image and likeness. As God's image bearers, we're meant to rule over creation as those who carry God's authority and act in God's name and in God's place in all of creation. We're given dominion over all things. We're called to fill the earth and subdue it. Some people have a bit of a problem with that language. Have dominion over the world, subdue it. They think that means we're given license to do whatever we want to trash the world, to destroy habitats and the earth, have license to do whatever. But we need to remember that when we speak of ruling and power, we're meant to rule as God rules, to exercise power as Christ did, which means sacrifice and service. It means putting ourselves beneath, giving of ourselves. Having dominion over the earth means serving all of creation. It means we're given the responsibility to help usher it towards flourishing. That looks, I'm sure, like a lot of things, but it certainly doesn't look like filling its oceans and waterways with cheap plastic and our landfills with yesterday's fashion trends we bought too cheaply and discarded too quickly. We are called to love and to serve God's creation because we're not slaves to God's, but God's partner in all this ongoing work of creation. Now, it does have something to say here about ecological consciousness and servitude, but it also has something to tell us about our work. See, in Babylon's story, human beings are slaves. All they have is their work is fulfilling their duty But our story adds something important. Day seven, God finishes God's work in six days, and on the seventh day, God rests. And God doesn't rest on the seventh day because God is tired. God doesn't check out and flop down on a couch somewhere to watch whatever Heaven's version of Netflix is to just check out for a while because he worked too many hours that week. God doesn't need a break. God isn't tired. God stops working. God rests on the seventh day because rest is the climax of creation. Because the Sabbath is its crown. Because we weren't made to be slaves to our work, caught in an endless loop of working too hard and then checking out finding our worth in what we do and accomplish like slaves to gods of productivity and efficiency and profit. God rests on the seventh day because God delights in God's creation, 
Because creation isn't done until God rests and steps back and delights and wonders at all of it. The Sabbath day, intentionally resting one out of seven, is built into the fabric and rhythm of creation because we weren't made to work, to accomplish, to produce. We were made to praise God, to delight in God's work, and to wonder at creation. What a different story. We're not made as slaves of God and of our work, but as God's partners, made to work, yes, but also to rest and to praise and to delight and wonder at the incredible God who's made this world as an overflowing of love, as a gift to be received and enjoyed and cultivated. So yes, your Sunday school teacher was right. God made everything, and it is amazing. But there's also so much more going on in this story. So here I want to pause. I don't know exactly what the Spirit is saying to you as you hear all of this, but I know the Spirit's saying something. At some point this morning, your heart was 